Hello, everyone. Thank you for joining. A special guest on this episode, as is every guest, a special guest, isn't it? <laughs> David Walker is joining us today. Someone I really align with and resonate with all of his insights, his wisdom, his knowledge, his background, his experience. David has a military background, went to West Point, and it served him super well leadership-wise and discipline, diligence, dedication-wise, whereas he's been a part of eight businesses, seven being hedge funds, and has his own hedge fund now with his partner where he went to West Point with, uh, actually, called Growthline Capital. In this episode, we talk a lot about growth curves, the curve that actually got him to buy into Growthline Capital when he started his his own venture. Talk a lot about leadership, books, culture within businesses. And David is someone who can talk on such things because he's been through it. He's an operator, an operational guy. He gets it done. GSD, right, David? But if you're listening, you'll know why that was, why I said that. And everything in this episode, it brings so much to light. So thank you for joining. Appreciate you. And I will see you very soon. I have a dream. That's one small step for man. I am the greatest. You want something? Go get it. Period. First place I did want to start, and David, I do appreciate you coming on to talk. Thank you for having me, Anthony. Yeah, we got a lot to cover, but I wanted to read something which shows like the breadth of leadership you had when you were in the military um, and cross it over to what you're doing now at the head fund. But a 500 man foreign military and paramilitary force you've led before, uh, 650 soldier airborne infantry battalion at 1.2. And now you're the co-founder and a COO at a hedge fund of your own. I read that off because like it shows the uh, amount of people that one has to manage, but like the intensity of such a thing and you've been through it. So like, what are the crossovers in the leadership between doing in the military and now hedge fund within business? Like, is there some like common traits that, that apply to both that you've seen since you lived through it? Yeah, no, absolutely. So for just for clarification, I was in, in a 650 man battalion as, oh, as a, oh. as a leader, but I led uh, um, a, a Green Beret, a, a ODA, uh, which is a 12 man special forces team. And we would go and we would work with uh, indigenous forces up to including 500 man. And the challenge behind that, to be honest with you, with when you're leading your team and leading, you know, about 500, you know, a couple hundred to, to 500 um, indigenous forces is not only do you have um, a lot of people under your um, command, but you also have language barriers and cultural barriers, weapons barriers, traditional barriers, all kinds of different religious barriers, perhaps that you may, you may not be aware of. And so a lot of, a lot of things you have to take into consideration. Um, and so the leadership is even more, in my opinion, even more challenging, even with the language barriers. So we, when we went overseas and we were working with, um, different forces overseas, either in training or in operations, we'd have to really, really study up ahead of time 
and, and learn their traditions and whatnot. And the smallest little mistake could be, could be actually quite um, magnified when you were overseas. And the same thing when you, when you were, you know, now that we're running a hedge fund, uh, the team is a lot smaller, but a small mistake could actually be, you know, you know could be magnified, uh, uh, you know, quite a lot. And so yeah. we have to be, we have to have a, a very good intent, attention to detail. For example, when we were in the Middle East, um, you may know some certain traditions, for example, showing the bottom of your feet, we cross our legs in America all the time when we're sitting and, and our foot might, a bottom of our foot might be towards another person. It means nothing, but over there, it's actually, it's actually an insult. So little things like that, you have to be very, very aware of. Um, and also like showing face and, and, and making sure you're, um, if you're disagreeing with somebody, you're doing it in a very, very sensitive manner because uh, here we can disagree about, um, you know, hedge fund positions and, and what we're buying and selling. And we just have a lively debate around that. Whereas it's not as, as, as easy in certain other cultures and whatnot. And so not only did I have to pay attention to that when I was working with commanders overseas, but I had to make sure my men were trained um, as 12 man special forces, uh, ODA operational detachment alpha, but I had to make sure that they were also very sensitive because they have dozens and dozens of soldiers altogether. Like I said, probably about four or 500, depending on the operation. And we all have to be very, very sensitive um, and, and very um, kind of culturally aware that a small discrepancy or mistake can be magnified. And kind of that sort of type of training of, of that sort of attention to detail, I think we've, I brought across and that leadership sort of component um, into, into my financial career um, and that attention to detail. And I think that has paid off uh, very well um, in either working for large hedge funds or uh, starting my own with a, with a good buddy of mine, a good friend of mine um, from the military also. Yeah, yeah. I, on that point, you've been a part of like, I believe it was like close to eight businesses and like seven being hedge funds. Like now you have your own, right? It's like, uh, what, what have you seen? Is it the same exact thing? Like the, the importance of the attention detail when it comes to hedge funds? Like what have you seen being the most important when it comes to managing such high level investments, which can be like rather stressful? Yeah, absolutely. And so there, each one was slightly different and there are some things that crossed over, but um, as I was working my, my way up in my career, it was kind of funny. I got a job at a hedge fund. I was kind of very lucky, had an opportunity to, to um, interview with a bunch of other folks in, in, in a fund that was a very large fund, multi-billion, multi-strat fund. And it was a great place to learn and work directly for the COO there. And so I just kind of cut my teeth by, by learning all the different strategies and all the different um, operations behind a hedge fund. And then I got recruited away to become a director of operations at a hedge fund. And then a couple of years later, got recruited away again to be a chief operating officer of a, of a, large, of a large hedge fund. So I got to progress in my career and learn more and more as I, as I, as I moved up, so to speak. But I would, see, I would say that the most important aspect of all funds um, is the people. It really comes down to um, the people uh, and the culture, and that is, and that can be driven. That's um, really driven by the leaders of the organization, and that's pretty much in any organization. Um, and so, the culture of, of some funds that I was at um, was a little bit difficult, to be honest with you. And the culture of other funds, I could tell the leadership was really big and really caring. And these are these are funds with sometimes fifty or it grew to like about a little over a hundred people, four offices worldwide. It becomes a little bit more difficult to manage that culture and manage all those people. And that's why it's very important to have good leaders at the top that can have that good understanding. Because if you want good work done, 
all throughout the organization, it really comes down to how much that leader cares about his people, sets the tone, develops the culture, and, and creates that path and that vision so that the strategy of the overall firm can be actually realized by the people who are developing and pushing that strategy forward. And so I really think it came, came down to the leadership. And I was very fortunate to work for some very good leaders, both um, in the military. My leaders were amazing. Like I learned so much from the leaders that I worked for in the military. I, I was very blessed in my career, in my military career, the 82nd Airborne Division, um, 3rd Ranger Battalion, 5th Special Force Group. My leaders were amazing. And, um, and also uh, had some very good leaders also um, in my hedge fund career. I guess I was just kind of fortunate. Um, some were a little bit more challenging than the others, a little bit more dif different in their leadership styles, but overall very, very good people who cared, cared about their people and who set the tone of what they wanted their organization to uh, be like and how they wanted to, to implement their strategy by their leadership. So I, I've been very blessed. I've heard stories out there. I'm sorry, I don't mean to ramble on, but uh, of folks working for some firms that, uh, that the leaders weren't as yeah. caring, didn't kind of dictate that and set the culture in a good, in a, in a good enough manner where there was kind of an internal uh, opposition uh, that brewed. And that, that's, that's not what, that's never what you want to see in any organization. So yeah, I yeah I, no, so. I, I, lo I love all that because it's uh, I have a book behind me. So it's principles. You ever, do you know Ray Dalio? Oh, I love I love reading his stuff. Yeah, I have his yeah. book too and his synopsis. And, oh, and no way. yeah, they're very good. Yeah, well, like he one of the biggest hedge funds in the world. And like he talks about people and culture is like the two driving gears. Right. To everything. Um, Sure. He talks about it and so you know, a, good friend, a good friend of mine actually is 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 a very high level leader up there, David McCormick. And uh, wow, made, Bridgewater Associates. That's correct. He's I think he's the president of Bridgewater. He's like number two, I guess, after Ray. I don't know if Ray's still involved in the organization or kind of semi removed. But uh, you would, uh, I think, you would like to interview him because he is a very brilliant guy and a great leader. Talk talk about a guy who knows how to lead. He was in government. He was in private. And um, he's a very, he's another West Point guy. That's why I, I know mm. him. And um, if you like, I can, we can talk offline yeah. later. But I think you should email him and I'm happy to set that up. And I think an interview with David uh, would be very worthwhile um, to talk about his leadership skills and what they do up there and also what he's done before in the military and also you know, working for government. Yeah, I appreciate that a lot, seriously. Yeah. But on that point of West Point, you brought up, uh, you did go there. I, I was close to having uh, an experience in going there, but that is one of the most rigorous academies there is. Like, does it live up to a type when, you know, you go in, it's like they kind of, uh, they throw you in the water without a life vest and you got to learn how to swim. It's, it's basically, it's basically, yeah, and that, to, be, to be quite honest with you, it really prepared me well for my, uh, my hedge fund career because the first fund I was at, even though I worked for a really great COO, it was a little trial by fire. It was really, um, and it was a lot by that. We had a guy quit uh, who joined a few months after me. He quit after like a couple of weeks. He just, it was, it was I guess it was a tough place, but it was a fair place, but you had to figure it out. And um, so back, back to the West Point example. And, you know, I was kind of fortunate that I was already an enlisted man in the military. And I was, I joined the military to get the college fund. And I did very well in the military. I was honor grad in basic training, honor grad in AIT. I maxed the PT test. I won numerous awards I was in my battalion. And so a lot of the officers came up to me and said, hey, you should continue your military career, not get out and go to college, but you should continue your military career and maybe go to West Point and um, try out. Uh, for that and apply mm -hmm. to that. And I did, and I got, I got accepted. So I was very fortunate 
But uh, so it was funny because, you know, I worked up my military career to, to a rank of E5. And then when I went to West Point, I had to start all over again. I was down at the bottom. So a few times in your career, you work up and then go to the bottom and work up and go to your bottom. So it's, it's kind of funny. We have to start all over again, almost like starting a new hedge fund. Now we have to go to the bottom. We have to start again and build it, build it up. So I'm kind of used to doing that. It's almost funny. But, um, but West Point was very rigorous. But um, like I said, I'd, I'd come from a very disciplined family. My, my dad was Hungarian and my mom was Italian. So there was a lot of discipline in our, in our family. So I was used to it. I think that's why I excelled in basic training. And also as an, at, at West Point, I excelled there because I was kind of used to the kind of a rigorous culture um, where some people were not so much used to it. And um, we had folks quitting in anywhere from three days to a, a couple of weeks in and and, uh, you know, I, I managed to do not only, you know, make it through, but, but I think I, I, I excelled at West Point. I had a high duty position and I also, uh, I did well academically and, uh, and physically and overall my cadet rank, I was near the top 10% of my class. Wow. That's, that's incredible. And like to everything you went through, I'd love to know, cause I'm big on stories. Mm-hmm. What was one of the most like stressful, it can be military or hedge fund related, like stressful, um, experiences you went through that really tested like you know <laughs> am i yeah. practicing for a reason if i can do this stuff yeah it's so funny because i'm wondering if i had more stress in the military i mean we had some deployments and i was never um in harm's way as much i we had one only one little one uh in 98 called desert fox it was like a three-day skirmish and it was it wasn't nearly what these guys had gone through post 9-11 the guys who were deployed to afghanistan and iraq and i have so much respect for them so, um but um listen I, I started another fund with a friend of mine uh who was at tutor and uh he came out at a great track record we raised about a, 160 i think we raised 160 total all in something of that uh, that extent um, unfortunately, we, the fund just couldn't put up the numbers that would keep us in business, so we had to shut it down. That was a little bit of a stressful situation for me, um, and it was difficult to handle because of a number of things. Obviously, it was our, it was our, it was our baby. Uh, a friend of mine and I had, had grown it from nothing. It was two guys in, a, in an idea and a napkin, so to speak, but we had employees, too, and I felt very bad that we unfortunately had to close it down and let them go. We, we cared a lot. They were good people, people who we knew um, personally and um, it was it was a it was a bit difficult to kind of have to have to you know send them on their way so to speak and and, and we try to give them as much severance and 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 and, and uh, introduce them to people that we knew in the industry so that they could they could get jobs and whatnot but it was it was just, it was a cha- it was a challenge um, I'm not sure if that was the most stressful situation I had but but it just it was probably a little bit more recent so it probably has some recency bias recent meaning of about ten years ago mm-hmm. um, but it was uh, it was difficult because. Um, uh, we, we, you know, I had to, we had, to, we had to shut down the fund, uh, learn how to start a hedge fund, learn how to shut down a fund. You never want to do the latter. Uh, but, uh, but, it, but it was, again, it was a, a challenging time because we had to let, let some people go who, you know, were counting on us uh, for their, for their income and their jobs. And whatnot. They all got great jobs afterwards and they're doing fantastic. That's good. That's that's good. good. Yeah. That's, I mean, no easy thing. And you learn a lot through that, but then you've started up growth line capital now so did you like was there a moment of reflecting through that after it happened to like why did this occur the way it did and now like you're starting another one and it can be it's going to be way better based on the learnings you have and just 10 more years of experience i'm guessing absolutely i don't know who it was it said i never i never i never i never lose i always learn so if i didn't get it gather a lot of lessons from it then it wouldn't have been worth the experience but i did i gathered a lot of lessons from it and we have i'm applying 
applying those now. But I tell you, one of the funny lessons I learned from it was I'll never start a hedge fund again. And I literally told myself, <laughs> and here I am. But, uh, and I'll tell you the story behind why I'm here. But um, so, so I, went to, I went to work, got a, got a great job at a really great firm. Good guys, smart guys uh, took care of me. Uh, the firm grew and a very small uh, a handful of people, literally five folks. It's a little bit bigger now. But um, when I was there, it grew from about 800 to over a billion, all close to 2 billion. And again, wow. but it, very smart guys and good guys. And they took care of me. And I said, you know, this is a great, you know, you could just sit here and continue on and, and have a good life. But my brain doesn't kind of work like that. I always looked at having a job as something I did between entrepreneurial aspirations. So almost, I mean, literally almost like the first day on the job, I'm like, okay, when's my next, you know, build up some income and when's my next thing. And I didn't want to jump quickly and off just crazily. And I, I developed some apps with a friend of mine years ago and, and, you know, we got those on the app store and, and stuff like that never really took off. We had a, we had a, um, an A round or an early seed round and an A round that was coming, but the market conditions weren't ripe in the app. A competitor, we watched the competitor was much larger than us kind of do the exact same thing uh, to their app to make it almost exclusively. Yeah. Like, wow, that was the day I knew we were done. Um, anyway, so I was waiting patiently for something. And Mark, my, my good friend and classmate at West Point, uh, he came to me and said, hey, Dave, let's meet for lunch. I have an idea. And he, he was at Goldman running a, a, like $7 billion as, as a portfolio manager at Goldman with a great track record. He went over to Jenison, the same shop that uh, Kathy Wood was, was at for many years. And they were both trained by, by a great growth investor named Sig Segalis at Jenison. Mark was there for 10, ran a – Mark Shatton, my classmate at West Point, ran a, 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 number, a bunch of billions of dollars, was co-manager of the big flagship fund there. So a great track record, great experience. And he came to me. We were having dinner, and he said, Dave, I have an idea. I want to start a hedge fund. And I said, Mark, that's a terrible idea. Why would you want to ruin your life? Trust me, I've been through it. You're having a Jerry Maguire moment. Go home to your wife and kids. Trust me, you have a great job. One of the best jobs on Wall Street. Paid enormously well. Like, you was making great money. I'm like, what, yeah. what are you thinking? So off he went. Six months later, he said, let's meet up for dinner. Met up for dinner. He said, I'm thinking about starting a hedge fund. Here's why. He kind of gave me a quick synopsis, but not the super in-depth. I said, that's a terrible idea. Go home to your wife and kids. <laughs> Third time, he came to me. And I said, well, listen, man, I can tell you want to do this. So give me, give me your reason why. Okay. Cause I, I know you, I can't, like, I can't talk you off the ledge here. Apparently you're going to jump. And he's explaining to me his philosophy. And Mark is a really smart guy. And I didn't really know how smart. And then he said to me, Dave, this is how I see the world. And, and he, and he explained to me, I can give you a quick synopsis of it if you want, but yeah. um, he sees the world as a growth investor through a unique lens. And I sat there and I just like, I was like blown away. I was like, oh my God. Because it's so unique and so different and it was so successful and still is very successful, very successful that I was like, wow, this is it. This is the, this is the one I was waiting for because I was just like, you know, making good money and I had multi-billion dollar hedge fund as a CEO. Why would I want to leave? I was like, wow, this is the one I was waiting for. And this was like maybe end of 2017 or 2018. But I was like, okay, wait, we need, here's how you, he said, like, I know nothing about how to put these together. I said, well, I know a lot how to put them together. Um, I worked for small firms. I worked for my own hedge funds. Matched well, like you matched up well, both of you. We matched up very well. I, you know, I don't pick if I'm picking investments. We're in trouble. If he's if he's doing the compliance and the operations and the in the trade and all that back office stuff, we're in trouble. So we were matched up perfectly. And um, I said, um, "Wow, this is very unique." I said, "Listen, if you're going to ruin your life, I can't let you do it alone. I'll join you." But I really, you know, it was kind of a joking sort of thing that yeah, he yeah. was do this he was going to find somebody and so i was a very good match for him 
But um, he, the way he looked at the world was so unique and so different through a lens of a growth investor. And I, I'm, I'm happy to explain to you his thought patterns because he even wrote a white paper on, on growth and growth investing that I think is very unique and very awesome. And, um, you know, we've got some good investors. We've been managing the growth of the firm very slowly and methodically. But, um, yeah, sure enough, we, we, we quit our jobs in 2018 and uh, launched the fund in early 2019. So, um, wow. There we are. That's growth line for you in a nutshell. That's incredible. That's a great story. Yeah. So, I, I would love to know, yeah, what is, what is his philosophy since he had, I mean, he had to manage an insane amount of capital under bigger companies. He yeah. He had to develop such a great philosophy. He did. And he showed me this, he pulled, cause I said, listen, he showed me this little thing he scratched together when he said, I scratched this together when I was at Goldman. This is how I look at the world. And it was really, and I, and I, you know, I'd love for you to chat with him because he can do a much better job of explaining. He said, listen, Dave, companies that grow, grow through this thing called the growth curve. You've seen it a hundred times. It's called the S curve or the growth curve. Coca-Cola took a hundred years to go up this curve. Facebook, 10, right? So companies now can grow up this growth curve much faster and they can compound and grow in size much faster than years and years and years ago not only technology companies, but all kinds, there's growth everywhere. There's growth in, in, um, in online gaming, there's growth in electric vehicles, there's growth in, in, in alternative energy, hydrogen, there's growth in, in on, uh, cannabis, you know, there's growth in all these in, 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 in pharmaceuticals and biotech. There's amazing growth, just amazing. And these companies in consumer discretionary, a company I drink the product that we, we invest in, it's so good. They're like, the, they're the next monster beverage. And they go up this growth curve where they're all fighting for to become the next something. And it's going to be huge. The winner, if the winner gets there, it's going to be huge. So Mark looks at the world. He says, Dave, I look at these incredible trends. So first he starts with these mega, he calls them mega trends, these multi-billion slash trillion dollar mega trends. And he tries to understand, are they real or just a fad, right? Is this a mega trend that's real? EV, electric vehicles, that is a real trend. We all kind of get it now. But 10 years ago, it was kind of like, eh, we don't know. Is it a mega trend or is it just some weird guy named Musk that's putting together? <laughs> it's a trend and it's here to stay. Yeah. Uh, hydrogen fuel cells, things of that nature. So he looks at these mega trends and he tries to figure out the TAM, the total addressable market. Is it multi hundreds of billions of dollars or is it trillions of dollars or is it just kind of a little niche thing that someone's going to own? They're going to make a little bit of money and that's about it. So once he understands the TAM, the total addressable market, he sees the technology, brings it back, might be tech, might be in any, any places. And he looks at all the companies that are fighting it out to win a piece of that. And what are they going to look like? Who are the winners going to be? And what are they going to look like when they get there? And then he models those out. We have an analyst who helps him do models. You know, we do financial models just like everybody else. And he models it out three to five years. And he looks at that, what, you know, what these companies can be. To, so, you know, how big is the TAM? What is it, what, what's the size of the prize, so to speak? And what do the winners get when they get there? And then who are the, who are the people fighting it out to get there? And he's, and he's kind of cut the growth curve into three areas. Well, so some people see growth in terms of sectors, uh, technology, consumer discretionary, um, you know, communication services, things of this nature. Well, he sees the growth curve in this direction instead of this direction. And that's where I kind of like had this weird epiphany, like if I don't join this guy, I'm missing an amazing opportunity, right? So he looks at the growth curve through maturing growth. These are companies that have already captured a meaning, meaningful piece of, of, the, of, the gro- of the growth curve, right? So they've only already, quote unquote, the one or two players that own their space, but are still compounding at significant rates. So these big companies like the Googles of the world, Amazon, Facebook, they own their, their TAM, but they're still compounding very, very, very well. 
Then he calls it a next segment, the middle segment, kind of on the growth curve, like right in that inflection point, he calls those next segment emerging, emerging growth. So these are where the TAM is known, but the winner still of the companies who are still fighting out is unknown. So we know the TAM is huge, but the winners we don't really know of. And then the last part, he calls it venture growth. It's not venture capital, still publicly traded companies. The TAM is unknown, kind of, they know it's going to be, they don't really know the size of it. They don't know the size of the prize. It could be huge. And they also don't know who's going to win. So if he had to break down, he balances his portfolio, basically about 40% of the mature growth, about 40% in the emerging growth, and about 20% in the venture growth because of the risk is a little bit more, although those can be hunter baggers. And there's a great book written by a friend of ours uh, called Hunter Baggers, uh, Chris, Chris Mayer. And it's a great book. I would encourage you to read. It's basically an updated version of Thomas Phelps' book, 100 to 1 in the Market, of these companies that if you get it right, that become 100 X of their current size, you know, Amazon became a hundred X, you know, uh, um, monster beverage, a hundred X. So if you bought it for $2, eventually it down the line, you might have to wait a long, long time and you might have to go through a lot of volatility, but they eventually become, you know, $200 if you bought it at two. And the cool, the key thing that Mark does, that's a little bit different than some growth investors as he manages that path along the way. So he cares about the destination, what it's going to look like when it gets there, but he's not willing to eat an enormous amount of volatility getting there. So he manages those, those positions by maybe either adding, attracting to it or the exposure to it or hedging or et cetera on the way to that, on the way to that, that, that goal, so to speak. And, you know, when I, when I heard this idea and this concept, I thought it was quite fascinating to me. And I, and I knew that he was onto something very unique. I don't know anyone, name one person who's looking at the world through that lens. I can't name one. And, um, and, and his track record shows it at Goldman and also at Jenison that he's been very successful um, managing these, these, um, these, these, these portfolios of growth for 18, 19, 18 years now. Wow. So that's, that's kind of the growth line story. Yeah, that makes complete sense. And to a lay person who doesn't know what uh, growth curve means now is fully educated on that. Yeah. You should Google it because it's really cool. You, you'll find one if you just go growth curve and then just go to images. Yeah, well, There's multiple ones on there. They have the radio, the television, the VCR, the refrigerator, the automobile. They're all, they know nobody, like what is this stupid newfangled technology? Some new person, you know, the early adopters and the, and the innovators. Then, it, then everyone says, wow, this is pretty cool. Then everybody has one like, like you know, like these already up at the end of the curve, right? But years ago, it was like, hey, you see some people walking around cell phone and they're awfully loud talking in the street. You're like, they kind of annoy you. You don't remember, you were, you were too young, but yeah. I remember nobody had, nobody had this. You know? So and now yeah. everybody. Some, some companies do an amazing job where they prolong that maturity. And it's just like, they keep, keep, they keep milking that, that cash cow, Amazon, uh, you know, Apple and Amazon, they're very yeah. good. And Apple is a great example, but they also kind of continue to innovate. So you can look at that. We have a good slide that kind of points out some companies are very smart. And can, so the Apple came out, you know, with the computer, then they're the, I, you know, the iPhone and the iPad and the iWatch and the, like, they're very smart on their innovation. They continue to innovate. A lot, a lot of large companies can't do that. They go up to the growth curve one time and then they start dying and they get beat up by somebody else behind them who has a new technology. And a technology doesn't have to be in tech. It could be in consumer discretionary or just a new product, new business model, new way of doing business. And they end up destroying that. And believe it or not, sometimes we find good shorts into what, you know, with these mature companies that cannot continue to innovate. Innovation is, the, is, is what spurs the economy. It just, it just, yeah. it, it, makes us such it makes america that's why america is so great 
you know, we may not be able to out manufacture, out produce, we can out innovate anyone. I will, I will, I will put us up against any, anyone in the world, America against anyone in the world in terms of innovation. Now there's some other ones that are out there that are, that are pretty darn good too, but, uh, but America is just known for our innovation. And that's why we continue to, our economy continues to be so strong, the innovators of the world. And we have the, we have, it's funny because we have the rule of law that allows that and, and to, to encourage innovation, encourage entrepreneurs to take risks. Exactly. I was just going to say that. Not, yeah. yeah not, entrepreneurship. It's like, no, we empower and we're built by a lot of those small garage companies that become huge. Exactly. Exactly. And it's fascinating to watch. Yeah, I have a friend who I did invest a tiny little amount in his company. He's developed this app. And he's getting some great momentum and, you know, who knows where it could go. And, and it's just exciting to see that two guys in, in, in his room have built this app over the course of eight months or so. And it's out there in, in the wild, so to speak, and people are interested in it and using it. So it's very exciting. Yeah, 100 percent. I, uh, I heard, you know, you brought up a book and I'm going to make sure to put all the books in the, in the footnotes. But uh, what is one one or two, um, if you're limited to one, you can choose two. But what is your favorite book? Uh, it doesn't have to be with like exactly hedge funds or exactly investing or exactly leadership, but something that's been a, a stake in the ground for you in learnings. Yeah. You know, there, it's so funny because I have like maybe four, maybe like, no, it's probably about eight books that are in my, like, these are the, like, I even put them to the side. These are like my super favorite books. Um, but I will tell you one that I give out as a present, believe it or not, to people. I'm one of, I'm that guy, you know, that guy who gives out books at Christmas or holidays. I'm like, I'm that guy. That's my so, guy. Not as exciting as like, you know, oh, well, you know, Uncle so-and-so, Uncle Dave gave us a book. But anyway, it's a great book. I, there's a bunch of great books. But one of them I really, I really give, I give out a lot. Uh, I give out Chris's book and a bunch of others. Um, the Richest Man in Babylon. Um, I don't know if you've heard of it. It's mm, yeah. a short book. Um, great book. Hundreds of, maybe hundreds, but, but, but probably tens of millions have been sold. And I don't even remember the author. Uh, but I think it's a great little read. It's just a good little read. Um, and it's a great read for young people. And because if you understand math um, and you understand the compounding of interest, like the eighth wonder of the world, I think Einstein said that, or somebody said the compounding of interest is the eighth, eighth wonder of the world. You know, someone at my age, I got to compound at like 17% just to match somebody at your age who can compound at 7% because of the effect, the beautiful effect of compounding. And that book covers it a little bit, but also covers other investment the theories and theses, so to speak, and it does it in a very um, storytelling sort of manner uh, that's easy to understand. And that's why you can give it to younger people, you know, high school kids even. And so I think that's a good book that I, uh, I recommend. Uh, there's a few others too, Marcus Aurelius, uh, Meditations, and a few others that uh, we can, I can, I can. Yeah, those, those are, yeah, I'm Marcus Aurelius, uh, like Meditations. Yeah, mm -hmm. that's a good one though. I like yeah. that. Those are good too. Yeah, absolutely. yeah, yeah. And uh, the one thing we did um, pass over was that I know you do the COO work. You're an operational guy at Growthline Capital at your hedge fund, but you've done a lot of operational work with the hedge funds you've been a part of. Like you've been in the military, so it's very operational intensive. Uh, you did study engineering. Like, what did you learn about the importance of systems? Because I even think right? The best designers in the world, best creatives are actually the ones who are the, they're very disciplined in a certain way. They're very like system oriented. Like you, you have to think in a scientific way to build good products or design good things. So it, it, a lot of it does come down to the basis of system design and, and having good processes, but what did engineering 
you know, did that give you anything in relation to your COO skills and stuff? Yeah, no, it absolutely did. And it, I was very fortunate at West Point. Um, West Point's an engineering school, so everyone's taking engineering, whether you, whether you like it or not. Um, and I, and I, um, I was kind of on the civil track, but I did take a couple systems engineering classes. And I actually wish I would have done more on systems engineering because um, you learn, I think you learn a lot. I mean, you learn about how uh, one thing can affect others, other things. You do Gantt charts and things of that nature and, and how uh, uh, timing and things of that nature. And there's critical paths you know, we're, we're doing, we're doing some things now that um, it's funny on, on one little thing on a critical path can affect the whole thing. So if you figure, and, and I've done, I remember doing a Gantt chart years ago for uh, an investment or something we were in and maybe had 130 some odd, if I remember correctly, um, separate events uh, that were, you know, linked to each other, but there's only 12 that if you didn't get them right and get them on time, the whole, the whole investment or whole thing would have fallen apart. So obviously critical path is very important. And you could let, I, it's funny because I, I say in um, to, to some folks who I've hired and who work for me, I said, listen, it's, it's very important in our, in our, in our business to understand you're always juggling as a COO. Our jobs are, are always, they seem sometimes like a mile wide and six inches. <laughs> And so we're always juggling everything from compliance to trade breaks to to, to, to leverage to, to prime brokers to there's some maybe and even sometimes the marketing functions fall under us and, and investor relations and and all kinds of things. But I always tell the folks that sometimes I have a controller working for me or so I've had you know a dozen people or so working for me. I said, listen, there's a difference between glass balls and and and, and rubber balls, and you're always juggling these balls. So you got to understand the difference between the two. You drop a glass ball, it breaks, something bad's going to happen. I had IT guys working for me as well. They fell under my, you know, so like a server repairs, a certain, all this. And then, and then things that we got going on, like trade breaks have to be cleared up in three days. Otherwise they go into settlement and problems, trade error, things like that. But rubber balls are things that, all right, if they, if they drop them, you can bounce them and they can pick them up again and keep juggling them. And so you got to understand the difference between those and don't let any glass balls drop ever you know, because that could have a, a detrimental effect. So the bottom line is that's just another way of saying prioritizing and understanding what's critical. Uh, and engineering gives you that uh, kind of that sense. And system engineering absolutely does that as well, because you understand critical paths, what's critical, what's a glass ball, what breaks, something is going to be ruined, whatever it could be, got an investment or a system or whatever forever and affect the whole firm. Or if it's just not that important, but it still has to get done that you can circle back around to it and, and, and get it done. So, for example, a lot of things I just put on hold to, to this to do this interview because they weren't that important. But I'll, I will circle back around. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. It was critical. I made sure I did it before uh, before we were we were chatting. So those are some some things that when I when I try and it's so funny because when I went to um, my first firm, it was called Concordia. It's no longer around. They got bought by somebody. And it was a great great firm, great place to learn. But um, there wasn't really a lot of learning. There wasn't a lot of formalized learning process. Some firms you go to, the big firms on Wall Street, they train you, you know, they book classroom, the whole nine yards for a couple of weeks. They train you very formally. Concordia wasn't like that. And a lot of buy side firms are not like that. So it was OJT, but I picked up on it and I learned it. But I, within, I forgot how many, maybe a couple of months on the job, I was already able to hire someone that worked for me. Yeah, maybe it might've been six months. You know, like Dave, you can hire an assistant or not an assistant, but uh, somebody worked for you, uh, not an assistant like a, an admin, but a another uh, another back office person who worked for me. And the difference was, I remember when I hired somebody, and he was a really good guy. I interviewed a bunch of folks, and we all interviewed him and hired a guy. I spent two solid weeks training him from nine in the morning to about you know seven at night, 
And I did my job in the evening because I was obviously a bunch of rubber balls unless wow. they were glass balls. And the reason I did this is because you have this learning curve and I wanted him to get up that learning curve quickly because for the first couple of months, you're really like sucking resources as a new employee from your organization. And then you finally start giving back. The break even is about six months. You've sucked and then you gave back. And if we, if I trained him formally, I could get his curve a little bit steeper, a little bit more front and end it. So he gave back to the organization more quickly. And I never had that. And he was very thankful that I actually trained him on all these things, everything from, you know, where are the, where's the file for, you know, such and such to here's how you do this. And, and, and I thought it was a kind of a, I really wish I would have had that. And I didn't. And it, it took me, you know, a little bit longer than I, than it took him because I gave him that formalized training. And I think that was very important. Um, and it kind of caught on to, to, to kind of do more formalized training when we get new employees. And the reason why is because we had one guy earlier, literally get up um, out of his seat, walk out at like seven or eight at night because one of his things, and just was so frustrated that he quit, like he quit right there on the spot. And I don't think people realize how costly and times, uh, what a time sink it is to have to go through the entire interview process to get another employee because this one broke, so to speak, and, yeah. and because he wasn't formally trained, didn't have the, 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 the guidance and the culture. And so that's, I didn't want that to happen. I didn't want him to quit. And then I have to go through that whole process again. So I put those time, effort, and energy and training in, into him. And I think it was very worthwhile. Mm. Yeah. I, I can resonate with that being at uh, my own businesses or companies. now it's like the, you want to retain the people Mm-hmm. that are mm-hmm. uh that are good and it seems like the the curves apply a lot to your life like you talked about mm-hmm. a learning curve related to the hiring but i was gonna ask i'm glad you brought up the example of the the balls right the glass or rubber like how do you manage is other practices you have for managing stress like i know you do ultra races right and that takes a lot of like um training in order to endure the suffering you go through in the actual race itself but do you do any like are you just used to stress at this point that you, that you can manage it well and you focus well with it or is there any practices you have with like uh being present to then conquer those well yeah that's funny i think it's good for me to burn energy and um <laughs> do a workout whether it's a long a super long bike ride, not super long but maybe i'll do a 50 or 75 mile bike ride or, or something like that or uh, or go to the gym and just work out um, I try to get my energy burned out, you know, so I don't, I don't overreact to certain things. You know, we all have our moments sometimes. Um, like early I, in the morning, you try to like, yeah, I usually do it first out. thing. In the morning. Yeah. I get it. Like, yeah. Cause it's just, it just, you know, it's funny cause you get the door finished flowing for the day. I figure I only need two cups of coffee instead of four. If I miss a workout, I need four, um, little things like that. And uh, believe it or not, I, 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 I do meditate, but not really as often as I should. I know Ray, Ray Dalio talks about that. Mm-hmm. And uh, I really wish I would do it more. I, I guess I don't wish I should do it more. I, I should do it more. It's, it's not about wishing it's doing, it's about doing. Um, but the work, I think the working out is, um, I think, you know, uh, I think it was Emerson who said, I'm going to butcher the quote, but uh, health is the first wealth. And um, so it's important for me yeah. to work out not only just to, to sustain a good, healthy body, um, but it also, I think, affects my productivity and my, and my ability to kind of deal with things that would come in throughout the day. Um, and I can certainly notice a difference on days when I miss a workout for whatever reason, I might have an early morning meeting or something like that. I'll miss a workout. Um, uh, I'm not as, um, I don't think I'm as, I'm as effective. So mm-hmm. yeah, that's, that's an important part of my, important part of my day, which I, I pretty much work out almost every single day. If I miss one, it's because of 
something that I, that I prioritized over the workout, which is, yeah. you don't like doing. Yeah. That's uh, I like that. The first, the first wealth is health. Yeah. That's the same. You got it right. I got it wrong. But yeah. Yeah. I think I have a shirt that says something similar to that, but uh, is there, is there anything you would want to bring up just like that maybe top of mind, you know, as we, as we are in a time when the world is actually opening up more and uh, just anything like you've been uh, marinating over recently, just cause I've been asking you a lot of questions, but mm-hmm. if you want to just like have the stage free to kind of say anything, cause uh, I filled up my jar of questions and this is definitely uh, an enjoyable uh, as an understatement, enjoyable conversation, but if there's anything you want to, speak on i would love to give you that room to do so i appreciate that i appreciate that a lot uh, anthony and, and i thank you very much for this opportunity to, to speak with you and um like you said before i think i think when i when i got out of the military there wasn't a lot of transitional support for folks now there's a lot more in fact a friend of mine wrote a book but for, for folks getting out of the military there's a lot more transitional support because i remember getting my first job i had i had about seven eight months to kill before going to business school so i said oh, i might as well work I wasn't going to sit around for eight months. I probably should have traveled. Now I think about it, uh, traveled more. But um, I remember interviewing at, um, at, at, a, at a place and they, it was Capital One. And I'm glad I, I worked there for it because it's a great company. And um, they kind of looked at my resume and kind of like, we don't understand. And I'm like, just hire me. Trust me. I'll, I'll show you why. And they were, um, they were very pleased. I think they were very pleased because they hired a, a couple of, it was like four, maybe there's a lot more now. I think it was like four ex-military folks at Capital One when I was there. Wow. And, uh, and I remember our, my boss saying, you know, we like you military people, you GSD. And I said, what does that mean? They get shit done. And uh, they like it. We got it done. We got it done on time to standard, you know, high standard to, to uh, our high standards. Excellent. Excellence. And just, you know, and um, it was uh, it was. So what I say, I would, I would hope that more and more people would um, would um, would hire ex-military, even though the resume doesn't, you know, line for line show, you know, a, a perfect transition to what the job is. And if you hire them for their, their ability to think on their feet, to hire them to man- their ability to lead and manage people, and and and, and those skill those softer skills that aren't you know perfectly transitional, you know they, they they transition well, but they may not be perfectly suited for the role that they're looking for. Yeah. You can teach them those finite skills in the role, and those other skills will transition over. I think you're going to get a very good quality person, you know, generally speaking. And so I I hope to see more of that. I think a lot of firms, GE, GE for example, have been doing it for decades they, they they broke the code on that they're like hey get these ex-military folks and don't tell anyone because <laughs> they're, <laughs> they're really valuable folks and they climb up and and there's a lot of other firms now that have, have that, that do it it's specifically go after ex-military and i would encourage more and more uh firms to do that because you're going to get a good quality person overall generally speaking and those those soft skills are going to transition over you can always teach the hard skills hard skills later so yeah. thank you that forum to plug the uh, ex-military uh folks uh out there that are coming into the civilian workforce yeah of course that was well said i uh i liked that a lot and uh, i appreciate the time again this was uh definitely worthwhile people listening hope you got a lot out of it listen back and uh if not because there's a lot of gems but uh seriously i appreciate this thank you anthony thank you for your time thank you very much yep you got it